All right. Well, good afternoon, everybody. As always, we appreciate you joining us. Um, if we hadn't met in person, of course, I'm Corey Worden. I'm the uh, professional development chair for AOHP, as well as the professional development chair for the ASSP healthcare practice specialty. And what you're listening to today is a joint publication from the AOHP, as well as the ASSP healthcare practice specialty. So we got a cool episode coming up. We got a great panel today. And what we're going to be talking about is respiratory protection. So as we all know, this is one of those topics that's, you know, really become quite prevalent in the last several years, being that we've had this global pandemic and we've had a lot of situations where people that may not have had a reason to use a respirator kind of got forced into it. And so things like N95 and fit testing and things of that nature became became uh, topics and and vernacular that that people learned whether they wanted to or not so it's been quite an interesting situation and with that we've had a lot of other situations come up such as counterfeiting and um, price gouging and supply line disruptions and all, all kinds of different factors there so it's kind of created this situation where we have things like appendix d or the the voluntary protection program becoming you know becoming common topics as well so we're going to kind of get into a little bit of that today, and we've got a great panel. So before we get into the questions, we'll go ahead and do a couple of quick introductions. So um, Chief Rush, let's start with you. we got uh, Doug Rush from, from Scopus Consultants. If you want to give a quick intro, please. Hey, sure, Corey. Hey, thanks for this invite. It's always a pleasure, you know, to kind of see you uh, in any format, and this is always kind of a really fun format. But my name is Doug Rush. I'm the owner of a company called Scopus Consultants. We're an HSC firm with a heavy focus on industrial hygiene. CIH, CSP, CHMM, SOHST, and licensed consultant in Texas for asbestos. Um, I learned this trade in the United States Air Force in the early 80s when I was part of the B program. Some of you on here, if you were part of the Air Force, you know what I'm talking about. I know Corey does. Learned it in the early 80s. Um, I led HSE um, throughout and programs around the world on um, Air Force bases. And um, after that, I led some HSE at Learjet, an aircraft manufacturer. And then shortly after I did that, did that I went into consulting. Um, a lot of my clients wanted me to do that. So I went into consulting and one of the, my major clients was healthcare. So I've worked with regional healthcare um, systems around the world, up in Canada, over in England, and um, all over the United States. Um, my major fo focus, it seems like these days, is uh, mostly forensics, uh, where I end up providing a testimony, um, primarily in defense of, of occupational health for employers. But um, if it's a case that I believe in, I'll just about get involved in anything that that works for me and that's about me awesome cool we're glad you're here all right and uh jeffrey peterson how about yourself so i started with um niosh in 1991 so i have over 30 years uh, expertise in the area of respiratory protection by trade, I'm a, an engineer. Um, I also have a, a strong industrial hygiene background. And I started my career at NIOSH in, in um, 
participating in research and standards development, which led to the, the update of 30 CFR to 42 CFR Part 84 in 1995. And then I decided to stick around and join the respirator approval program to um, work my way up through the ranks to where I am today as, as branch chief of the conformity verification and standards development branch within uh, the National Personal Protective Technology Laboratory in NIOSH. And we administer um, the respirator approval program. And um, we've uh, had an interesting couple of years. So um, I thank you for this opportunity. It's great. We appreciate you being here. And uh, the work y'all do is, is certainly very important. I know when they made that, that's um, those those emergency use authorizations. That was huge, huge benchmark in our world as far as you know, uh, um, the um, that that difference between you know bona fide approvals from NIOSH versus um, um, trying to think of the word for it um, workarounds for the pandemic. So it's definitely an interesting couple of years. I, I certainly agree with that. All right. Um, we're glad you're here. Thank you. Um, uh, John Powers, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, Corey. Um, so I'm John Powers. I'm also an engineer. Um, I started my federal career in 1988. I started with the uh, Defense Department on various projects. Um, I came to NIOSH in early 1997. Uh, has, I spent the majority of my time in NIOSH uh, with a uh, the Division of Safety Research, which back in the day um, had the respirator approval program. Um, and then I started working with uh, NPPTL, uh, which is, you know, me and Jeff are in the same division. Um, I started with them in 2016 um, and have been uh, the branch chief for the evaluation and testing branch since then. Um, and like Jeff's group, we are involved with all the testing um, done in the respirator approval program. So, and like Jeff said, it's been an interesting couple years. Um, we, we have been involved with um, efforts recently and over the past couple years uh, with counterfeit products. So, uh, Looking forward to when we get to that question. So, with what products? Counterfeit. Oh, awesome! Yeah, we're glad you're here. Thank you. That's definitely definitely important work, and that's one of those things that it, it's always interesting. You know, we used to hear about the counterfeiting, and we would even see it, you know, on the on the NIOSH website where they had the examples of the different counterfeit products and whatnot, and it's interesting. We used to think, well, you know, uh, certainly we can spot a counterfeit. You know, they misspelled NIOSH or whatnot. And then it got to the point of those those counterfeiters, they, they got really good at their craft, you know, as, as devious and deceptive as their craft is. So it's been been a time. Um, but again, we're glad you're here. To, thank you. All right. And we got uh, Dave Thomas with reps. Dave, how you doing? Great, Corey. Thanks for uh, thanks for the invite to join the uh, conversation here. Um, I'm the owner founder of reps. Uh, we are a manufacturer's rep slash distributor of uh, environmental health and safety instrumentation with a huge emphasis on uh, industri uh, industrial hygiene respirator fit testing uh, instruments. 
And uh, I, I started my career with a, a little company called Dreger, and uh, I, I worked nine years there. And then I have now over 30 years experience selling, training, teaching. I, I speak at several different colleges down here in the Texas area uh, on the respirator fit testing. And uh, we have sold the uh, TSI port account and the uh, AccuFit units. So uh, I, I, I'm in hospitals all the time uh, talking teaching, learning all about respirator fit testing. I think that's why I was invited here. <laughs> great. Hey, well, glad you're here. Thank you. And it's definitely a, the, the fit testing part is such an integral part of that, this, this whole, um, whole program. All right. Awesome. Well, let's get into it then. So, uh, first things first, you know, of course, with anything in, in safety, we got this this these prerequisites if you will you know we have regulatory standards and we have national consensus standards and so that comes into where we have you know osha and we have cdc niosh and then then of course we have best practices that, that follow that up and everything and and we like to hope and pray that that everybody across the board is is compliant with all of that um so my first question for the group is you know, what are your initial thoughts about what currently exists as far as we got, you know, 29 CFR, 1910.134, which, you know, of course, requires the hazard analysis as well as the medical evaluations, the training, the fit testing. And then, of course, you know, we have the all the national consensus standards and best practices that, that follow that. Um, so what are your initial thoughts on that? Do you think that that's um, do you think that that's that's a good um a good foundation a good bedrock do you feel like there's there's needs with that what are your thoughts um uh, let's see we can go ahead and do it um we'll just make it open forum if anybody wants to jump right in you know corey i think that the 1910 134 respiratory protection standard has has got a great basis for all that we do, you know, out there in industry, healthcare, no matter where we are out there, it gives you a really good sound basis for helping to, you know, um, to identify um, issues and get the appropriate respirator um, in there. I've seen that respiratory protection standard um, progress over the years. And um, every time I read it, which I reread it this morning for this, um, just to make sure I was somewhat current with it the um i'm always amazed with the stuff that i see that i didn't see before <laughs> so but it does a great job everything from the, which i think is the most important thing hazard assessment it causes you to put together a hazard assessment uh, anything that you're doing and with that you know in mind it it kind of if it's used properly, you don't need all the extra regulatory stuff that happens out there. Um, I know that people want a, around, you know, that work in this business want to be told exactly what to do sometimes. But I think that it gives you enough leeway to use a professional opinion to actually do a good thing for employees who are exposed to whatever it is, whether it's biological or hazard or whether or not it's some sort of an exotic chemical. 
it gives you the basis that you need. So I, this is Jeff. I, I agree with Doug as a, you know, a sound basis based on the in, industrial hygiene principles um, that, that we've come to know over the years. I think where it's been a bit difficult in, in some of the healthcare settings is doing that hazard analysis, right? Because a lot of the the agents and the, you know, aerosols um, and, and challenges with some of the, the hazards don't have associated uh, occupational exposure limits. So I think yeah. um, that's, that's one of the big issues that we face. And, and where I think um, some work could be done to, you know, not necessarily improve upon the standard, but help to educate the folks that need to use it is to develop some, you know, competencies around, you know, what it is that a fit tester has to know and be able to do what a program manager a respiratory protection program manager has to know and has to do and um, get those published. So several years ago, I know a, the American Industrial Hygiene Association started some of that with the intent on, you know, making it clear what the the, the, the skill sets for fit testers were, and it, it turned into more of an overarching, you know, document where I think the focus was more on what it is a, a respiratory protection program manager needs to know and be able to do. But um, I think, you know, some continued work with some efforts like that would be incredibly useful um, as the, the healthcare systems start to, you know, use these these processes you know more readily you know because i think that's the other thing that we're seeing is that um you know 1910-134 has been out there for a long time but there's always a question of how how diversely and you know it, it's been interpreted and used you know in in some sectors I, I agree with uh, with yeah. Jeff too. Jeff, if I'm not mistaken, the last full revision was in 1998, I, I believe. Is that correct? I mean, we had the 2019 shortening of the CNC technology uh, protocol, but as far as the whole standard, was it was it not 1998? I think so. Now we're looking at what 24 years or so. Yep. I think the latest OSHA yeah. standard is dated 2009 or something like that. The respiratory protection section. Right. The OSHA respiratory, I think it's last one is 2009. I may be wrong and I may have read that on something else. So I think I think there were some documents that got updated in, in the nine time frame that, that were more so associated with APFs. Um, and I, I, like I said, I can't speak for OSHA and, and that's why the statement is you know but um, yeah I'm not, I'm not sure about the last update but you know there hasn't been a lot of lot of change you know with the base requirements right. and expectations of a program is right and, and, and especially mm -hmm. I, I apologize I, I'm speaking as, you know specifically to appendix a on respirator fit testing which is my my mostly background and so forth so they're just other than as I say the 2019 shortening of that protocol I I'd just love to see I mean I know I, I, you know, NIOSH is against irritant smoke fit testing. OSHA still says it's okay. Um, I, I'd love to see things like that worked out so that there's a um, an agreement, hopefully towards not yeah. using that method, which I think is, um, you know, those are, those are some things I, I'd love to see. 
Mm -hmm. Those are definitely definitely great comments. Yeah, it's always interesting how things um, either evolve or don't. And I, I think these last couple of years, it's definitely shed a lot of light on where where some of those potential issues are, like the um, you know the the validity of validity of fit testing methods or. or um, Jeffrey, your comment was great there as far as um, as far as not, you know, there's no PEL for a disease exposure. You know, I know that when the pandemic first started, the the common go to for a lot of people was, you know, within six feet for six plus minutes. But then, of course, the question is, well, you're equally liable to get sick if somebody sneezes in your face in 20 seconds, you know, so it's definitely an interesting thing. Um, same with radiological, you know, there's no Alara for or as low as reasonably allowable, you know, for a for an airborne disease exposure. So interesting stuff. But you know what it did, Corey. You know what it did. Mm -hmm. I think was whenever whenever the pandemic started, uh, people started looking for you know a go-to resource. And among all the things that we've already talked to, the standard kind of laid out uh, the very first thing you need to do is the hazard assessment. And yep. the hazard assessment required, most hygienists have been through this process and many, most safety people nowadays, right through the hierarchy of controls. So it led us right down through the lines of the things that we did. Um, and just like with any, I mean, I was in a plant here recently with some very exotic chemicals and uh, that had no PELs. And I went right, it had no PELs, TLVs, nothing. I went yep. right through the hierarchy of controls and uh, we we sorted it out uh, and put some engineering controls in there and from there uh, things settled out. I think that's the way this happened with the pandemic too, exactly that way. And, and like Jeffrey was talking about that AIHA or the um, industrial hygiene groups have been putting out for years since somewhere in them seems like the late 80s a strategy for doing occupational exposure assessment and the thing i've noticed particularly since the pandemic has happened is more and more people are learning how to use that strategy and it's mm -hmm. it's great because the younger workforce wants to be informed and they want to they want to understand what my exposure is and what it is i need to do to protect myself and those strategies used in conjunction with the standard um, work out perfect for taking care of people, in my opinion. I mean, we're doing the same thing with this monkey pox right now. Yeah. Um, trying to identify what's the source and moving right through it. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the hierarchy of controls is certainly a fantastic benchmark and foundation. Um, yeah, that actually kind of brings me to the next question here, which is, you know, speaking of the the hazard assessment. So, you know, like to y'all's point, you kind of read my mind actually is, you know, being that there's, you know, there's no PEL, there's no uh, no REL. So do you feel like there's a good um, strategy or a good um, a good thought process for organizations to develop that hazard assessment as far as who needs the respirator program? Like I know, you know, generally it in the in the in the past we used to go by, 
you know, well, if you have somebody whose job expectations is to purposefully go into an area where there's going to be, you know, known contamination, then that's where they have the respirator there. And then outside of that area will be your voluntary protection program. Um, but that's really, um, that situation has changed a little bit with the with the heightened stakes of the pandemic, you know, and the fact that we have other things um, such as, um, you know, uh, larger amounts of testing and things of that nature. And, and to your point, you know, we've been able to implement a lot of engineering controls, such as drive-through testing and, and things like that. So there's been a lot of progress there. So what are y'all's thoughts about that hazard assessment? Do you feel like there's any any um, any good foundation for that, that 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 you'd like to share? So you know, I think you know one thing that that gets that, that's happened over the course of the last couple of years is you know the misunderstanding of of, of um, what a respirator is and does versus what masks and facial barrier coverings do, right? Yep. So, you know, a respirator protects the individual that's wearing it from an inhalation hazard. So, you know, in terms of, you know, being able to identify that there's an inhalation hazard and that a respirator needs to be used, you know, I think the the program is, is effective in, in doing that as long as, you know, the folks administering it are, are well in tune with some of the definitions. Um, you know, where I think it gets, you know, a bit complicated is, you know, when we talk about the, the voluntary protection programs and the use of facial coverings, you know, where we're, we're trying to protect others. So that's not respiratory protection. That's, you know, more source or infection control. So, you know, I think there needs to be, you know, when you're talking about the OSHA standard, you're you're talking solely about the use of respirators and, and the fact that you're protecting, you know, the wearer's respiratory system. So I think that's that's the first thing that we've noticed is happened over the course of the years where folks try to intermingle the two. And if you do that, I think it becomes much more difficult to administer a RPP. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely great, great perspective. That's where I see the the difficulty being simpler, actually, because when you focus on the worker who is exposed, um, suddenly now you're not just dealing with the term worker in general. You're dealing with the term worker and what he or she does. Um, so, are they working in an ambulance? There's a big difference in working in an ambulance versus working in security versus working in the uh, carpenter shop in the uh, hospital. The exposure is a lot different. So you focus on that worker and then you start seeing what he or she does, how they do it, how close in contact they come with the potential to um, become you know, exposed to whatever that item is. In this case here, um, you know, the COVID or any other biological contaminant. So you, and then you focus on the, the, the method of transmission and um, you start narrowing all these things down and, and, and where the worker works in a building. Like for instance, you go into a hospital, some workers are 
purity administrative and they're working stuck in some office way back in the back they'll never see a patient they've got a great hvac system um, their exposure is a lot less than the guy who's picking up somebody from you know an apartment that has had a heart attack and maybe also has covid exposures are different so the controls need to be different and we can't just mandate one particular control for all of those things we can't put a, a face mask or we can't put you know a tight fitting respirator on everyone you put uh, and you can't just put up a barricade on everyone you you put it those things in place as are needed for the task that is being conducted i get that i'm a field hygienist <laughs> so i see this all the all the time and I have to explain this to CEOs and COOs and everything all the time. How to control the hazard doesn't mean we control it for everybody in the factory. We control it for the person or the worker. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, definitely differences in the in the exposure risks. Absolutely. Yep. Cool. Any other any other thoughts about the the initial hazard assessment? No? All right. Well, we'll go ahead and go on to the next thing there. So we kind of covered that a little bit in terms of the the actual exposure risk and then those that are, um, those that may not be in that particular group, but they're, they're concerned about a potential, um, potential exposure. And so that's where we get into that Appendix D, which is the Voluntary Protection Program, and then of course that has its own stipulations there, where you know of course it does not require the employer to do nearly as much, um, but it does allow for the employee to use a respirator if they feel like they would have a good peace of mind for from that, and so that's been used by a lot of people I know. Um, so just real quick before we get into the rest of the program there. Do y'all feel like that voluntary protection program has a has a good place in this? Do you feel like it's useful? Well, if no one wants to talk, I will, because <laughs> I have definite opinions on it. The uh, um, I think, like any piece of personal protective equipment. There has to be some sort of training. So giving them Appendix D and saying, here, read this, or reading it to them and not following up on it to see the way they're actually dealing with those respirators or uh, face mask, whatever it is that they're using, not checking on it to make sure that they're actually, you know, using those things the way that they should be using presents a hazard in itself. Um, yeah whether it's that they have some sort of a face mask that they never change and so their makeup is inside of that face mask and it gets contaminated with grungy stuff and it gives them pimples or whatever it does you know not checking up on it um which is the way i perceive appendix d um can be i have a client just a few days ago that um we identified that he had no hazards in his workplace, but he still had a lot of dust. Um, 
so he's handing out the the face mask like candy and there's hazards associated with that if they uh, get a false sense of security that the thing is being used and it protects them from anything and everything that's a hazard um if he thinks yeah. he can walk into a room full of carbon monoxide and that mask is going to work um it's just not the way it is and i know appendix d covers those things but the employer needs to stay on top of that and they need to have competent oversight to look at it and help them understand um, i'm convinced employees want to do the right thing they always do but that right thing is so many times dictated by what we say or don't say we have to be actively involved um, in the programs yeah i i would agree and you know i'm not again i'm this is my opinion i'm not speaking you know for osha here but you know my understanding is you know that the voluntary protection program doesn't really you know when it comes to things other than respirator it doesn't apply um so that's that's my, my you know i want to make that statement and because you know if, if folks are choosing to wear masks that certainly shouldn't shouldn't be conveyed as being part of appendix b of 1910 134 if, if they do and and i think you know there there is some some accountability for the employer even the way that appendix d is written there there's still that if a, if a, if an individual chooses to wear a respirator the the employer still does have some responsibility to make sure that it isn't going to create a hazard yeah uh, so you know I, I i think you know if 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 everyone it comes back to you know understanding what the competencies and responsibilities of the program manager are right so if everybody would have a better understanding of that, it 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 um, might not be, it might be perceived very differently. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's great, great perspectives. One of the things I'll I'll always remember. Well, actually, there's two things regarding an Appendix D. There is there was one situation to to Chief Rush's point where I I came across some people that were expected to work with chlorine chlorine gas and they this wasn't an organization i worked for by the way it was some people i was talking to socially and they had been misinformed to where they, they were under the impression that should there be a leak in the chlorine gas that they were gonna use a basically a I don't remember if it was N95 or if it was even a surgical mask, but either way, it was not going to work. And um, so I, I had advised them to please please talk to their their safety advisor ASAP. Um, and that was part of that as well. But the other thing was um, there was another organization, and they had misinterpreted the, the phrase voluntary protection program. And they said, well, we're going to have people that we're going to have them they're going to be like a strike team and they're going to respond if there's a potentially infectious person and because these people are volunteering for that duty they're we're not going to do the the you know we're not going to do the fit test and whatnot and we said that that's that's not what that means at all we said if these if these people are 
going to be potentially exposed as part of their job functions, then that becomes part of the respiratory protection program. It's not Appendix D. Just because they volunteer for that duty within their job function does not mean it's a voluntary protection. So it, it's quite interesting how, how things can get misinterpreted very easily. Um, so y'all's perspectives are certainly valid. Um, but that kind of brings us to the next point there, which is where we start getting into the, the really you know, definitive parts of this thing. And so we got to validate that these respirators are, are effective. And that's where I get into fit testing. And so there's always been that line in the sand where you've got the qualitative fit testing and you get the quantitative fit testing. So I'm, I'm absolutely interested in y'all's thoughts on this one. What, what do you think? Pros, cons? Um, I'll, I'll just throw it out there. Y'all can jump right in. Well, Corey, you know I have lots of opinions on this. Sure. Uh, I, you know, again, full full disclosure, I sell quantitative fit testers, but I can tell you in 20, 29 years of calling on hospitals, most people, when you talk to them, don't do qualitative correctly. You know, they take shortcuts. I would challenge anybody to find me a video on on online somewhere where it shows a the full seven minutes worth of squeezing, seven minutes worth of time for qualitative fit testing. So most of the, you know, for, for the sake of time, and I get it, it's like watching paint dry, but you know, so, so these people see these, these abbreviated videos on, uh, on YouTube or wherever, and they don't do it right. I, I unfortunately have been in the hospital with my wife for the last, uh, for, for 90 days this, this spring, she was in the hospital. And I asked every nurse, have you been fit tested? And if so, how were you fit tested? And this was a major hospital in the Houston city, Houston, and one of the nurses said, oh, I just was fit tested yesterday. And so I said, oh, so they squeezed the nebulizer 85 times total. They tested it 10 without the respirator, then another 75. She says, no, they squeezed it a few times. Yeah. And that's the answer I get and have gotten for years. Now, part of that is because, you know, the healthcare industry was one of the last ones to come to annual fit testing. You know, they used to just have to adhere to the TB standard. And then in 2004, that, that changed. So they have to adhere to the, the, the whole respiratory OSHA standard like every other industry. But I think a lot of education needs to be done still in the healthcare industry, which is, you know, this is what you're doing, Corey. I, and I applaud you. And I agree. That's why I've mm -hmm. offered to, to help you in any, any way I can. But I think, um, you know, there's just the nursing schools, perhaps, you know, maybe these are the people, you know, teaching, I'm not, I have to be careful here, I don't, maybe this will come off wrong, but they're, they're, they're from the old school, and, and oh, yeah, we got tested for TB when I joined the hospital 35 years ago, and I never had to be fit tested again. I think that, that, that some of the education needs to fall back on, on the nursing schools to, to, to understand, to, to make sure healthcare workers understand the importance and the, uh, the need for proper fit testing. And if, and if qualitative fit testing is done correctly, it can be great. Although, quite honestly, with COVID, these are some of the things you have to be concerned. What happened? People lost their ability to taste. So uh, saccharin and bitrex are both taste tests. So sure, make sure that your people didn't lose their ability to taste when you're, if you're offering those kind of fit testing. So this is Jeff. I, you know, I... Mm -hmm. I agree that, that probably in a lot of cases qualitative isn't done correctly, but I think if it is, it is, you know, a good indicator of good fit. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the challenge I think is that makes quantitative better is that 
you know, it's, it's so much easier to use the port account as a training instrument. You know, when you're teaching somebody to don a respirator, you, you can you can walk through them in the count mode so that they can understand how, you know, different adjustments or positioning on the face affects, you know, the fit in, in, in terms of what's happening with them as an individual. So from that perspective, I, I do believe that, that quantitative is, is better. And then, you know, certainly the qualitative isn't really to be used for anything other than, you know, something with an APF of 10 or less. So, you know, it was really developed only for half masks. So whereas quantitative can be can be used and applied across a much more diverse population and type of types of respirators. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think um, you know there, there's people when, when when we were first able to start fit testing N95s quantitatively, I had a number of CIHs that you know no, you can't do that, you can't do that. So you know it, it's it's been a, a growing process. Of course, that's been available now for over 20 years, but it certainly can be done. And and absolutely, both the AccuFit and the uh, Port Account both have uh, in their software those those training aids to be able to you know show. Show someone. I, I I agree with you totally, Jeff. I think they're they're important uh, uh, things to do to to make sure you know. And we and we talk about that when we when we train people. Is that look use this. This is a great training tool to be able to show people how important it is to make sure they form the the the, the fit correctly. I, I, if I if I could just maybe just off off quite this question though, Corey and, I, and to, to the NIOSH guys, I actually just discovered um, the, your your um, Propose like a uh, draft NIOSH healthcare personal protective technology targets for 2020 to 2030. So I, I I apologize. I just discovered that document and I applaud you with a lot of the things. That's probably my other thing that we saw. Uh, I mean we've seen it for years, but definitely saw it over the uh, over the course of COVID more with all these people jumping into oh you know we used to make Tyvek clothing or smocks or garments and so forth like that. Well, we're going to jump in and start making N95s. And uh, the, the problem was they're, they're, they didn't have a lot of research on how to make one that actually fits people well and protects people. So I think that would be something. And I know I know you you all are aware of that. And I, I, I would hope uh, as, as things continue to progress, that those kind of things are somehow put into the approval process. Um, so, you know, you have so, to be able to... So we are actively working to incorporate the ASTM, I think it's F3502, which is the respirator capability um, yep. requirement to 42 CFR. So there will be some fit assessment for those respirators that only have particulate protection. So for all other types, we do have other types of population-based fit assessments as part of the approval. It's just for those with only um, particulate protections that we don't currently. So, you know, that is that is certainly one thing that we're doing. And for those of you that, that might be familiar with our prioritization policy as we've been having to deal with COVID and the EUAs and, and you know, everything that's been going on in the past couple of years, um, one of the things that we say we won't entertain are, are respirator approval requests that have novel head suspensions. And that includes, you know, products with ear loops, right? Because we did have some data that demonstrate that they don't fit well. 
and you know other types of head suspensions you know whether it be a single strap or other unique things you know we we felt it just you know wasn't the time to try to entertain those and do the work and research to come up with you know some other alternate method of ensuring that they do fit people so um with putting that prioritization out we we basically said we're we're not going to entertain those until respirators the respirator fit capability um uh, standards incorporated into 42 cfr 84. um so yeah we 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 are aware of how important fit is and you know it's there's still a lot of folks that um seem to be in the healthcare arena that that still we know don't do fit testing and i don't know if that's because you know they've followed more of the fda schemes and guidance over the years um, which is quite different or you know what but um somehow we need to spread that word and you know thanks thanks corey because this is one of the ways that we can do that that's great we appreciate y'all appreciate y'all being here to do it for sure and I, I'm glad y'all brought that up because it actually segues nicely into the next couple of things we'll talk about is um, when you mentioned using the the quantitative fit testing as a as a training aid, I, I fully agree. Matter of fact, I just did it yesterday is I, I had somebody that was adamantly convinced that they could, you know, they could work safely with a negative pressure tight fitting uh, filtering face piece respirator with a full beard, you know, and um, I, I, I had explained that it was going to break the seal and they didn't want to hear it. They really didn't want to shave their beard. And so I hooked them up, put them onto the quantitative fit testing and showed them on the real time screen. And they could literally see right there that it was breaking the seal wide open and their fit factor went, you know, uh, the person before them had, had properly passed their fit factor was, about 100 and uh, goodness, 85, um, and this person was coming in at uh, 14. So it was it was pretty clear what was going on there, and I was able to show them that in real time, right there in front of their eyes, um, which was really really good for them to understand how it was putting themselves and and their their colleagues and even the public at risk. Um, so that kind of brings me to the next point there, which is the the constant uh, facial hair issue. I know this is definitely something that goes on in, in, in healthcare, definitely. Um, and I know it goes on elsewhere. Um, the one thing I always tell the, the fire department that they have in their favor is that they have a hardcore policy requirement as far as, you know, standards and grooming, like the military does, that kind of resolves that. But um, typically, you know, it's perfectly normal for a, an RN to have a full beard, um, but still be expected to be in the respiratory protection program. So what I'm wondering is if y'all have any thoughts about that as far as the facial hair issue and, and ways that people can possibly counter that. So I think OSHA's positions, you know, very similar to ours because we've incorporated it into some notices that we have out there. And um, I think our interpretation was always that you shouldn't be fit tested if you have any more than a few days growth or stubble. And that caught some attention and that, forced us to to make our position more consistent with OSHA's and um, you know OSHA basically you know states that you you shouldn't be conducting you know a fit test if you aren't 
if you haven't been if you have more than 24 hours of growth or stubble so we've we've updated our notices to incorporate that language um i think that over the course of you know the pandemic you're right we're seeing you know more folks that that don't want to shave and don't realize you know the impact of of not having any hair you know within the where the ceiling surface of the mask mm -hmm. face you know as to how important that is and you know i think we put out a few years ago um i think it's actually an iosh science blog and i can drop drop that into that as well as the notice link into the the chat box so you can capture it but mm -hmm. to beard or not to beard blog yeah. and the poster associated with that is to you know what is acceptable facial hair so i i will you know certainly drop that into the chat box here mm -hmm. That's great. That's great. Thank you. All right. And that's cool. a nice uh, chart that you're talking about. I, I think that's a great chart. The, um, you know, this is the area where the danger starts whenever you start just putting filtering face pieces on people um, for voluntary usage. Suddenly there are these ear loop masks and all this kind of stuff. Suddenly, um everyone feels like that they're safe and it's that false sense of security that i was talking about earlier you know to me if you need a, a respirator because of there's an exposure you uh, wear a respirator that's fitted whether it's a filtering face piece or it's a um, rubberized mask and that's where an employee has to be an employee and do what they signed up to do and that it's where an employer has to be an employer and do what mm -hmm. they signed up to do and yeah. uh, that means enforcing rules and regulations and if people don't as sad as this as bad as this sounds and as tough as it sounds um it's all about their health and i can tell you this in a courtroom um an employer saying you know we we didn't want to make him shave that just ain't yeah. gonna work <laughs> he's gonna yeah. lose um because the attorneys on the other side is gonna just continue to beat well what does the rule say what does the rule say and yep. and there there's no excuse there's like tony dungy says there are no accidents no excuses um you know just do your job Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. There is definitely a time for the employer to um, to, to have accountability there, uh, even if it it was like they you know they used to tell us in the military, especially in uh, I remember in Airman Leadership School, they said you know now that you're a NCO, they said what's you know what's what's uh, popular isn't always right, and what's right isn't always popular, and you have to differentiate between the two. Absolutely. And that kind of brings me to the next question there, which is, so we're talking about how fit testing can help to differentiate between when things are effective and when things are not effective. And we've had this issue with counterfeiting where we've had these different products that have popped up. I know in, in the case I know about, you know, unfortunately, I know very well about these products were, you know, thought to be legitimate 
this vendor thought they were doing a service. They said, well, I'm going to import these products. I'm going to sell them. I'm going to give them to the people that need them. And, you know, whether they're being honest about that, I, I don't know. But we do know that they came in. They looked good. But then we checked on the lot numbers to be diligent. And they were absolutely counterfeit. And so we were advised by the by the manufacturer not to use them, um, which we did not. And so thankfully, we caught that whole thing before they made it their way into the field. Um, so my, th my question, of course, is about that as far as counterfeiting. What are y'all's thoughts as far as, you know, how that's manifested, what people can do about it, what people should watch for, y'all's experiences with it? I know that y'all have been dealing with that very closely at NIOSH. Uh, what are your thoughts about counterfeiting? So, Corey, I can jump in here. I've been been pretty quiet, so I can definitely chime in on this topic. Um, one of the things that we did, um, I believe we started late 2020, and, and Jeff, you can chime in and, and uh, add anything you'd like to add, is we began to work with um, our legal counsel, um, and we started to, to look at the marks that we use. So when I say marks, I'm talking about N95, you know, P95, uh, N100, P100. Mm -hmm. um, the words NIOSH approved, uh, the stylized logos for NIOSH. We, we have one that's just the NIOSH, and then we have one that, you know, has the, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health spelled out above the logo. We, we began the process to register these as certification marks with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and several of these marks have been granted to us. So now we have the ability to, um, under federal laws for, for certification marks, to enforce the use of those marks. So what we've been doing is monitoring um, marketplace watch lists. So our attorneys that we're working with um, have access to these watch lists and they send them to us weekly. We get rid of products that aren't, um, you know, so as you can imagine, N95 is, is uh, it shows up in a lot of part numbers for things that aren't respirators. So we, we have to go through the lists and eliminate things that aren't respirators. And then we look at things that are on the list. We can use all the resources available to us to verify which ones are NIOSH approved and are um, granted authority to use our marks. We eliminate those and the items that are left over, uh, we work with the attorneys to have them removed from those lists. So these lists in include things like Amazon, eBay, um, you name it. Um, you know, there's a list out there called Made in China. There's um, Flipkart. Uh, there's numerous, numerous um, places where items are being sold. Uh, we've been concentrating our efforts on on those that can be purchased in the United States. So that's where we've really focused our efforts here in the past uh, three to four months. Um, we did recently have a, a meeting with our attorneys, and we do have these marks also registered and granted in um a lot of international countries so um we made a decision yesterday to start looking at those um areas as well 
and try to start enforcing in other countries as well. Um, it's been a, it's been a, a huge effort. Um, we're, we're doing it with limited staff, so we're doing the best, best we can right now. Um, and we're hoping it'll have impact and it'll eliminate those products from, from reaching a consumer. Um, it's, it's probably going to take some time, mm -hmm. but um, that, that's the overall goal is we hope we, we get these things off the market and prevent them from getting on the market. But, but you are correct. You made a statement earlier uh, that, that, you know, the counterfeiters got really good. Um, and, and you're, you're, you're spot on with that comment. I mean, it's, um, we reach out to some of our approval holders at times with some pictures of things and, and they have a hard time. Um, you know, they will find little nuances. Um, some companies are proactive and have, you know, started to, include some different things on boxes to make them stand out or ways they can they can tell that it's it's a legitimate product um, but yeah it's it's um it, it's difficult at times to really be able to tell what what's legitimate and what's counterfeit that's awesome that I, I think one of the appreciate that go ahead please no, I just was going to say, I think one of the things that's been very helpful with that, too, was when uh, it used to be there was just a, a list um, without any pictures. But I think actually uh, now, you know, when you go to the CDC website, NIOSH website, um, one of them, I apologize which one it's on, but they actually have pictures of the packaging, pictures of the respirator, you know, and, and that certainly will help um, healthcare workers find some of these these bad ones. But, yeah, I, 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 I agree. I know I've seen some of these, Corey, that are that – are, they're, they're, they're good knockoffs. Uh, yeah. Be careful. Yeah. And, and I will, I'll add to that, that our, you know, our list is not exhaustive. What we have on our, uh, we, we could refer to it as our counterfeit misrepresentation page. Um, so it, it's not exhaustive. Um, and, and what we've been doing most recently is, is we, we reach out to some of these um, companies that we find out about, um, and we ask for the takedown and, and if they take it down, uh, we have not been adding it to that list. So, so moving forward, the items that will show up on that page are going to be ones that, um, you know, the, whoever's listing it absolutely refuses. Um, we, we do have additional legal action that we can pursue, but those are the ones that we'll, we'll continue to put on that page, um, in the future. So it, it's just one of those things too, where. You know, it's a little tedious, but, you know, you, you just have to go there, kind of scroll through it and double check, you know, if somebody wants to look at something before they buy it. Another great resource is our certified equipment list. We point people to that all the time. Um, it will give you all the information you need to look at, the approval number, um, you know, the, the model number, it, it'll be there. And it's another great source for folks to 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 verify what they're buying before they buy it yeah and, and john i'm just going to chime in here you know so so we do do these we offer these approvals called private labels right and they're where the approval holder is responsible you know for relabeling the product under um doug's respirators right it's supposed to be the same respirator that they manufacture with only the name changed and then a special caution and limitation on the product. And 
those those products can have the same approval number as is the base approval or they could have a new model and part number so that information is also on the the certified equipment list so when you're looking for something and you see a name you know different than what you expect to see you know one piece of advice might be to look at um, what is listed as private labels associated with that approved product as well and see if it's listed there that's that's great definitely awesome insight we appreciate that i know a lot of people have been struggling with that um both on the the procurement side as well as you know on the operation side and making sure they're they're getting legitimate product and then the fit testing has certainly helped with you know when in when in absolute doubt you know you can see if it's if it's properly properly filtering so that that's great so that's actually i, I know we're kind of running up on the end but if you all have a few minutes i was going to come to the last question there which is so we had these situations where people they they can't get filtering face pieces or they're they're trying to find a a more sustainable solution or whatnot and so of course there's been a lot of other things going on on the periphery you know things like um, hydrogen peroxide disinfection processes and all that but we, we won't go there for now but some organizations have gone to elastomeric respirators which uh you know i've i've used one many times in the military and um we know they work i've been in a I've been in a room with with Saren and VX, and I'm still here talking about it. So I know elastomeric respirator works well. Um, what are y'all's thoughts about elastomeric respirators going into the um, in, into the programs where they're historically filtering face pieces, such as healthcare? And do you feel like they have any potential impacts on uh, patient perceptions or anything of that nature? What, what are your thoughts about that? so this is this is jeff i think you know we we um saw with our collaborations with the fda and the euas that were issued that was were that fda did recognize elastomerics as is um, potential solutions in the healthcare healthcare space um so that was a, a step in the right direction i believe and we have been doing a lot of research and surveillance to understand, you know, how these are being used, how elastomerics are being used successfully, in fact, in some healthcare settings. Um, you're right. Some of the, the challenges are, you know, as you said, cleaning and disinfection. So you've got to follow uh, approval holders, you know, requirements for cleaning, for storage, for use of in reuse of the filter if it's allowed and um you shouldn't be trying to extend you know filter life right yeah uh, so you know it all comes down to if if you're using them in a manner that's in compliance with the manufacturer's recommendations and you have developed um, good cleaning and disinfection techniques or adopted osha's cleaning and disinfection techniques then i think they they can be used successfully um there may be some challenges you know associated with you know is it harder to talk with an elastomeric on than a filtering face piece um you know I, I'm, I'm not in a position where I, I can answer that but i can certainly see where that would be maybe a challenge and i think that's you know part of what we've seen in the movement of the last two years is that folks are now trying to you know innovate and, and and resolve that issue where we've seen some elastomerics come in for approval 
where they're clear and you can see the face through them. Um, so, you know, those, those will be, you know, coming out hopefully shortly. Yeah, I'm on board with all that too. You know, I've seen a lot of respirators used in healthcare. I've seen them used in industry. What I believe is that the elastomeric, I can't even pronounce the word, they're a higher quality uh, respirator. But whenever you hand them out and you do your fit testing and all this kind of stuff, what I've seen, no matter where you are, the things that work the best is, is if you give the employee a way to carry it with them, you know, like uh, maybe a small backpack or something like that. Um, they'll keep them with them and then they'll use them when they need it. And then beyond that, the other thing is, is cleaning of these things. Um, they need to be kept clean and trained. So, the cleaning, the best programs I've seen is where the employer will provide easy access for them to clean them and not necessarily for them to clean them and particularly in healthcare, where they can put them somewhere and somebody will come by in the evening, pick them up and clean them. Um, whenever those two things are done, uh, the success rate of people using respirators, uh, is great and with our new workforce that we have they expect to see this kind of stuff happening um, they're not surprised when somebody shows up with a respirator um, and no matter what situation it is that you you're in uh, you might be surprised that they might be asking you to use one <laughs> you know uh, too but um, to me so carrying it training and cleaning and you get those things down and it's piece of cake from there. It makes every respirator program administrator's job easier. Cool. That's awesome. Definitely great insight. Well, heck, I know we're, we're past four o'clock. Um, so I appreciate y'all's time and I, I'm, I'm sorry to keep you over. Um, definitely awesome. I wanted to want to get that, that last bit of feedback because it's definitely been a fantastic conversation. But um, before we wrap up, is there a um, last call? Anything anybody wants to add today before we, before we finish up? I'd just say this one thing. Cleaning, a I think it's so important with cleaning a respirators. And since I know your podcast is going to be heard, soap and water. <laughs> Use it. Clean them. Don't don't throw that respirator in a locker, particularly with your makeup on, you know, all over it or whatever or the contaminant covering it and you put it back on the next day. Soap and water. Clean them up. And um, I think it'll take you a long way. So. Corey, I'll just close with one of my my teaching points when I'm out is that I always tell. Uh, always tell the, tell the students, if it doesn't matter how well the respirator fits, why wear a respirator at all? Respirator fit testing mm -hmm. is a key and most important part of that respirator standard. Do your fit testing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that was great. And again, we, we certainly extend our thanks for everybody's time today and, and your, certainly your insights. That was a great conversation. 
and uh and definitely thanks to dr mitchell for for setting us up <laughs>